0: Great to be with all of you, and I say this with no exaggeration uh, I really can 't do my job without the support of the corporate and individual groups of people in this church. so thank you so much. Uh, you are helping change the lives of Purdue students, and that 's not an exaggeration. We get the joy of seeing people come to know Jesus every year and baptize them and see them walk in in faith uh, many for the first time so it's it 's great to be on the college campus and it 's great to be back here with you and to open God's word with you. Uh, this morning, I want to look at what it means to live a life pleasing to God. And there's, there's several reasons for that, but maybe the most important one would be that even as someone who preaches the gospel and who uh, shares the word with others, it is equally and constantly as applicable to me as it is to anyone else. And a few months ago, I felt like I was going through some transitions. I was very stressed. There was a lot of stuff going on on our campus. Uh, We were making plans for some changes. The summer was coming, and we look forward to that for rest. And at the same time, summer seems like a time where we're making lots of transitions. And I've heard lots of transitions happening here. And you make a lot of decisions about what are your kids going to do next summer or next year, next school year? What are they going to be involved in? Are we moving? How's our job? There's a lot of things that come up at the end of a year. It's like we're looking forward to the rest, and at the same time, I think the transition brings up a lot to our own hearts and minds. And I was wrestling with that, and I woke up one morning. We were doing a series in Colossians at our church at that time, and I woke up with some of the words of Colossians in my in my mind, and it was We'll read these verses from Colossians 1, uh, verses 9 and 10. It's page 983 in your pew Bible. And here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. As you turn there, he's speaking to a young church, a church that is in somewhat in danger of being swayed easily by all the circumstantial things around them. And his conviction is they've got to hold on to the gospel as the first and foremost thing in their lives. And so he says this in verses 9 and 10. It's a prayer. He says, this is how I pray for you. So from the day that we heard, and that means heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And there's a purpose to this. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I woke up that morning uh, praying and reflecting on some of the anxiousness, the anxious fears really inside me. And if I was honest, there were fears. And I was recognizing that when I am anxious, my mind fixates on fears. It fixates on life outcomes that I don't want. So I have a problem. I have a question. I have a decision to make. And I'm afraid that if I choose poorly or even I choose rightly, but it still just doesn't turn out very well, uh, my life will not really go as I hoped. So essentially, I'm afraid that I won't be pleased. And I, I can live more of my life in that place than I recognize. And that morning was a morning of conviction that I often wake up every day going about my life saying, how am I going to be pleased? How am I going to orchestrate things? How am I going to do what needs to be done so that I will be pleased? And I recognized in my own heart that I was afraid my desires wouldn't be achieved or that I would be disappointed, and that in that disappointment, I would be doomed to a non-glorious future. If I take anxiety to its furthest end, it's essentially... To some degree, I mean, there's biological things going on for some of us as well. But in our day-to-day worries and fears, it's as if I'm saying, I don't trust that there's any glory in my future. This decision, I can botch it all up and it's all over. So many days I live more afraid that I won't be pleased with my life. Rather than having this orientation, this fear of the Lord, as the Bible calls it, that I won't be afraid that I won't please him. More of the time, I think, there's so many times where I'm afraid I won't be pleased with my life. Rather than wondering, am I living a life that is actually pleasing to God? As I look through the scriptures more after reading and thinking through Colossians 1, I realize Paul is drawing from this biblical wealth that all throughout, from beginning to end, from the early parts of Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's this connection between pleasing God and what is called the fear of the Lord. This attitude, this... Uh, this this disposition within a Christian, within a follower of God, that is a foundational response to knowing the goodness of God. It's a fundamental component of Christian faith. To live a life pleasing to God, we have to fear the Lord, as the Bible puts it, as our foundation. But that's a really difficult phrase. Have you heard that phrase, the fear of the Lord? Because today, for many of us, if you're an English speaker, first and foremost, fear just immediately draws up horror or dread or, or terror. And so in order to think about living this life pleasing to God, and especially maybe if we're making lots of decisions about our lives, as we're seeking to live faithfully to the Lord in our community, we might want to ask to live pleasing to him. What does it mean? What is the fear of the Lord? And why do we struggle to fear the Lord? And how do we grow in it? Because the scriptures tell us it's important to grow in this foundational quality. So first, let me start with what is it? What is this fear of the Lord? We can see two things throughout the scriptures, at least. The fear of the Lord is based on a certain view of God, and the fear of the Lord leads to a certain kind of life. So the first thing, fear of the Lord based on a certain view of God. We see throughout scripture, I'll give you just two short verses, but there are many, where fear and awe, wonder, awe, majesty are correlated. Here's an example, Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. These are parallel sentences. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. One of the prophets says something similar, but he talks about this overarching story of God's covenants. And he says, he's quoting, uh, the Lord says this, Malachi two five. My covenant was one of life and peace, and I gave them to my people. It was a covenant of fear, and they feared me. They stood in awe of my name. You see fear and awe correlated together. These are just two examples. And when you work that out in these contexts, you see This is not terrified fear, per se, but holy fear. It is a view of God which understands God is the first principle in life. He is the fundamental reality of the universe, the great authority and author of all things, because he alone created all things. And so when we get to Malachi, what God says in Malachi is the whole direction of our life is dictated by this covenant promise God makes. It's centered on the fear of the Lord. He says, it was a covenant of fear. My covenant was one of life and peace, but it was a covenant of fear. You know, I said, well, how does that work? This is where we see it. It conflicts with our immediate understanding of fear. Life and peace, but also fear. Do you have life and peace when you live in utter terror every day and all the time? Now, there's something going on in how God describes what he means. The fear of the Lord is based on this, this right view of God that he created us to share in his goodness. That his promise is for our life and our peace forever. He's great. He's powerful. He gives us life and everything. Maybe to put it in an overly simplistic analogy, I was uh, watching, I saw this short video somewhere, uh, and it reminded me of the fear of the Lord. So, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, famous movie actor. He's a big guy. He's in every movie these days, I think. I think every movie in a theater right now, he's in it. And there was uh, one of his more recent movies. He showed up to a movie theater that was filled with a bunch of kids, uh, so he showed up during the ending credits, so the movie had just ended, they just watch it, and then there he is, he's in the theater, and there was a lot of 12 and 13-year-old boys, and uh, one of them, it was their what is this, his birthday, so the kids, all his friends were like, hey, The Rock, it's his birthday, so The Rock's like, oh, hey, how old are you, and the kid's were like, uh, uh, uh. He just gets so nervous. He's so in awe that his favorite action hero is literally standing in front of him. He, like, forgets his own age and can't tell him. And one of his friends is like, he's 12. So this is, like, just a simplistic, overly simplistic example. But this boy was so excited, so nervous to be in the presence of someone he viewed as so great that he couldn't speak. The fear of the rock, so to speak. The fear of the Lord, there's something about his powerful presence. When you see who he is, how he made us, and what he desires for us, it's all consuming and overwhelming. The second thing, though, it leads us not just to, well, I have a good view of God. Good. I I see him. I understand. That's great. It leads us to something else. The fear of the Lord is not just a view of God. But as we see who God reveals himself uh, to be, this view of God leads us to a certain kind of life with God. So it's not just, I have right knowledge of God, or I can see some things that are true of him. It's an experiential thing that enters our life that we then start to live. So to really see and behold God is never simply seeing and beholding, but becoming and living. It takes hold of our life. One of the, so this is, again, why the difficulty with the English word fear and thinking terror and dread that doesn't make us live a certain kind of life that we think reflects good things in the world. When we live a life of fear, we hide or we attack or we withdraw. But this is a different kind of life, a different kind of fear. It's about revering God, giving honor to him as great. due respect because he is worthy of respect. And he wants to invite us into the kind of life that he has. And so we want to please him. We want to live with him, as Paul said, live a life fully pleasing to God. What does that look like? Well, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, in essence, here's a paraphrase, I'm so overwhelmed, so awestruck by the goodness of God that I can't help but take courage even in the hardest of situations. In all things, Paul says, this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. In all things, we make it our aim to please him. Being in awe of God leads to living this life of aiming to please God in everything. So as he goes on in Second Corinthians 5, he says, My whole ministry is based on knowing the fear of the Lord. And this, he says, is so that we do not lose heart. We are always of good courage. So again, a kind of a paradox. I know the fear of the Lord. Therefore, my whole life, my work, my ministry is based on Taking courage and not losing heart, even when things are hard, because I know the fear of the Lord. And then he sums that up by describing uh, this: What compels me then in everything? He says, "It's the love of Christ that compels me." Second Corinthians five verse fourteen: For the love of Christ compels us. Fear and love and courage are all intertwined in this biblical understanding. And Paul is not saying, "I'm going to scare my friends into being Christians." The fear of the Lord, I'm going to scare them. He's saying, no, I'm compelled to share with them the love of Christ. It's what compels me and what will compel them to see who God is. So what does that mean, this compelling love of Christ, to be compelled? Well, if we're compelled by the fear of the Lord, we're compelled by the love of Christ, we're given courage even to enter tough situations in our life. We are compelled. It means that our attention is so intensely occupied with something that it urges us on. That is our fixation rather than fixations on those circumstantial fears alone, like I woke up with that morning. It's this I am fixated on God and what he has done. I'm fixated on how my story amazingly has been brought into his. And so the idea of fearing the Lord in the Bible is linked with this loving God. Because God first loved us, because God wanted to make a storyline of this covenant promise that your life is to be about life and peace, not about harm and disaster. This core idea of the fear of the Lord. When we come face to face with God and we know him as he really is, we no longer want to live for ourselves. Here's what Paul goes on to say, though. The love of Christ compels me, and then he describes what that love of Christ is. Christ died for all, he says, 2 Corinthians five fifteen. Continuing that passage, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul saying, look, the Lord has set his heart of love so completely on you and I that he died to take our place. He died on our behalf. He exchanged his life for ours. And you know someone loves you if they're willing to exchange their life for yours the fear of the Lord, this inward awe and reverence that leads to outward actions of love in every way into the life that he's given us so that we are reflecting him into every aspect of our life. But why is this so hard? Why is this so hard to do? Even for those who are Christians, like we we wake up each day and we might have those fears. Why is it so hard to then come back to the fear of the Lord? I think it's In part, described in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage, we can see a problem already. It's the core problem the Bible describes of humanity. The fear of the Lord is not what compels every aspect of our lives. This this right view of God that leads to this aiming to please him in all things. And the struggle, the Bible seems to say, is that we're far more interested in pleasing ourselves. It's the core problem of humanity. What did it say in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 15? Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. The word no longer live for themselves seems to imply we've been doing a whole lot of living for ourselves. The fact that it had to be brought up in that way implies that what got Jesus killed? He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, meaning Jesus had to die because of how we were living our lives, because of our view of life, because of how we were living. So if there's this crucial connection between God's love for us and our fear of him, it's this, that he loves us so much and that his love is to so overwhelm and fill our hearts that we are compelled to see there is really nothing else that will form a good foundation for us as we go about anything we do. But God didn't just send us his love in a Hallmark card. He didn't just send, hey, I love you, live for me. He showed us his love by dying for us. And that seems extreme. Why did he have to do that? He wasn't actually just a martyr dying to say, look, I love you so much, I'll show you, I'll die for you. Look how much I love you. He was dying not just to show us, but to take our place to put upon himself a selfless person, the selfishness of a people who live for themselves. He died for us, though we cared little about pleasing him. But he was pleased to do that work on our behalf. And that's the gospel. Romans 3 spells this out and says, the core problem of humanity, again, the Apostle Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He lists this whole thing that we're not, we don't long for God, that we don't seek to do good to other people at all times. We speak deceiving lies to ourselves and others. We have hearts that are angry and bitter at some of the things in our lives. We cause pain and harm to others. And he sums that up by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's saying all these circumstances in our lives, when they go astray, when we find we're doing things we don't even want to do, it's we've lost the view of God and we've lost the aim to please him. There's no fear of God before their eyes is the Bible's one-sentence way of describing the core problem of humanity. And yet... We have to go and look at this because the Bible also says it's our core problem, but it leads us to disaster if that's where we stay. All throughout the Proverbs. So again, going through different parts of Scripture, we see this theme continually comes up. Proverbs brings it up and talks about the fear of the Lord quite often. In the beginning of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So to know rightly, to walk well in the world is to start with the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs 28, 14, it says, "Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity." Blessed is the one, or you say, "Happy is the one who fears the Lord always and continually, but whoever hardens his heart falls into calamity or disaster." So, hardening your heart is another theme in Scripture. It's this. It's not about uh, atheism, as if we say, "I don't think God exists." Everybody in the ancient world believed in gods and that gods existed. So hardening the heart is used all over the Bible, not to say, I don't think God exists, but to refer to people who believe that God exists but would rather not give him prime place in their life. So the Bible is saying there's a danger to that. It leads to disaster. It leads to the harm of relationships or, or difficulty in the world or pain and suffering. We're looking for happiness, he says, but blessed are those who fear the Lord. So as we think about this, supply this in some sense, as we think about if you're making decisions or going off into some next phase of your life, looking at your summer endeavors, thinking about your work, what is it that you hope will make you happiest? What is it that motivates you? What is it that's compelling your life forward these days? Is it the desire for success or the pursuit of some great achievement? The need to prove yourself to your parents? Is it the need of love from a significant other? The need for respect or status from your peers? Are you driven by anger at someone who's wronged you? Are you driven by needing to be constantly affirmed and liked? If I take a look at myself, I can answer yes at some point in my life to every one of those questions. And many of those things are beautiful, good gifts that God gives, but they can't be the first thing. Proverbs 19:23 says the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. Man that convicted me as I started reading that. Man. The fear of the Lord, whoever has it, you rest satisfied. Like my anxious morning fears are not me resting satisfied. I'm waking up having supposedly rested to a day in which I am already worried before my feet touch the floor about how I'm going to make life work. This is our difficulty in many ways. The, the, proverb, the book of Proverbs also describes it in terms of envy. It says, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. As if, So continue in the fear of the Lord, or the opposite would be envy, to live in envy, which is wanting, it's kind of this simultaneous admiration and resentment. I admire what someone else has. I also resent them for having it and want it for myself. It's this, I'm going to look around at life, And what I see that I don't have, I want, and I wish I had it. This is the kind of thing that leads us to all forms of pleasing, either trying to do things to get what we want, or the other side would be people-pleasing. I do a bunch of stuff for other people, or to make other people like me, or to hopefully achieve what will make me happy. And instead, I lose sight again of God and what my aim is to please Him, and I instead... Seek to please others, sometimes in such a way that it brings harm into my relationships. I withdraw. I won't do conflict because I don't want to make people uncomfortable. I go too hard into conflict because I need to win. Things in our lives start to get out of sorts. Jesus has this really interesting statement in Luke 12. And it's somewhat confusing when you first read it. Luke 12, verses 4 to 7, he says this. It's a command not to fear. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can harm or kill your body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do to you. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. It's really weird to read that. He says, don't fear people who can literally destroy your whole life. They can't do anything after you're dead. Fear God because he has the power and authority to judge us, our life and in death. Also, don't fear him because of sparrows, and he knows how many hairs are on your head. What? Well, in the temple, sparrows were the cheapest things you would go to sacrifice. If you were poor and you couldn't afford to sacrifice anything else in the sacrificial system, you would buy a sparrow for a few pennies. He's saying, you are worth so much more than that. If you fear that you are worth very little to God, don't be confused that when we say fear him, it's not because you're of little value or you should only live in terror of him. But in fact, fear beats fear. Don't fear the things of life. Don't fear the harm stuff around you that can hurt you and damage you. But fear him. Why? Because then you don't have to fear. Fear the antidote to fear. And so Jesus is calling uh, his people, his disciples, that's who he's speaking to, to grow in this fear of the Lord. Living under the fear of the Lord, he's saying, enables us, it liberates us to grow into this new life with Christ every day. Let me me close that by telling you a story. How do we grow? And give you this example of a woman, I've heard her story, uh, who went to counseling. This woman was in her late 30s. She had never married. And her family and her part of the country believed that there was something radically wrong with any woman of of that age who was still single. And so she wrestled with shame. She wrestled with feeling that somehow she'd failed as a woman. And because of this, she also had unresolved anger against a man who she had dated many years before. But he had been unwilling to marry her, and eventually they broke up. The counselor she went to told her that she was too wrapped up in her family value system and that her personal value as a woman uh, to have a husband and children was too steep. It was, see, she was saying, the counselor told her, this is what's making you worthwhile. You feel worthwhile if you have those things. Because you don't have those things, you don't feel worthwhile. And you're bitter against the man that you used to have a relationship with because he's coming between you and the life you hoped you'd have the life that would give you significance. So the counselor proposed something. The counselor said, I think you should throw away such an unenlightened view of, that, of, the, of your family background, and you should devote yourself to your career. You don't need a man. If you come to see yourself as a good, accomplished person, you won't need a man or anyone else to give you a sense of worth. And so the woman began to try to throw off her old cultural values, to throw off her family's values. And she began to feel a little better, but discovered that even as she immersed herself in her career more deeply, and she threw away those other values, she still struggled with a lot of resentment toward that man who was her, uh, her boyfriend in the past. Just about the same time, for the first time, she started attending a church that preached the gospel. And She realized that though she'd been in churches before, she'd never actually heard the gospel. And so what she heard was something that was different than what she expected, She thought that we amass for ourselves a good record. We do enough good. We live the right way. We seek to please those around us and get what we think is good in life. We then show ourselves worthwhile. We present our record to God and say, God, look what I've done. My life is good. I've done the right kind of things. I've proved myself worthwhile. But what she heard that day, as she heard the gospel for the first time, was that you don't give your record to God, but Jesus gives his record to God for you. And you could never make yourself more worthwhile than to receive the worth of the Son of God himself standing in your place, doing that sacrificial thing of love that we talked about in Second Corinthians 5. It changed her life. She said, I've been living for myself, but it turned out that Jesus was living for me when I didn't even know that he would give himself up in that way. We are completely loved and accepted, she said, by the only one in the universe whose opinion really counts. Because what she discovered was she'd been living for the opinions of everyone else, and sometimes including herself. So this woman began to realize that her well-meaning counselor was actually only half right. Indeed, it was wrong to seek her self-worth through male affection. That had been a trap. It made her view of herself contingent on what men thought of her. But now she was being asked to look at her career and her accomplishments as a way to feel good about herself, to find her self-worth there. And that meant that instead of her self-image being dependent on what a man thought of her, her self-image was dependent on achieving success in her career. And as she heard and understood and started to work out what the gospel meant in her day-to-day life, she said this, she said, Why should I leave the ranks of... Of men, uh, Why should I leave the ranks of my family and those who make family their whole life to join the ranks of men who make career the same kind of thing? Would I not be just as devastated then by career sac- setbacks as I have been by romantic ones? She said, no, I will rest in the righteousness of Christ and learn what it means to rejoice in him. Then I can look at men, or I can look at my career, or anything in my life and say, what makes me beautiful God, to God is Jesus, not these things. Do You see what's happening in her life? I mean, this is just a description of what it means when her life is no longer centered around the fear of people, or the fear of not having all of her hopes fulfilled here and now, but the fear of the Lord. She feared what men thought of her. She feared what, whether she'd accomplished enough in her career there was essentially, she would, she would say, no, no fear of the Lord before her eyes. That wasn't the driving force in her life. So she had now become compelled by God's love for her, so much so that her attention became intensely focused on looking at him and letting that reshape how she viewed every other thing and how she aimed her life as she went. And she found that she was less anxious at her job She found that uh, over time, she experienced what some people call emotional wealth, and she was able to begin to forgive the guy who'd really hurt her in the past. She started to feel great freedom from that. For the first time in her life, she was no longer angry at him and bitter about it. And eventually, she actually did meet a man, and she did get married, and she said later, well, I'm I'm actually glad I didn't get married earlier. I think that I would have put so much stock in making my husband fulfill me that I would have destroyed our marriage. She says, now I have such a different view, and my husband and I, we keep together looking to the Lord. We keep finding that as we give honor to God in all things and find he has loved us, he has given himself up for us, we can do the same to one another. It has reshaped our relationship and the way we go about things. Friends, how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Good news is that the Bible says we were once this people who had no fear of God before our eyes, and yet even we can grow because of what Christ has given to us. He restores our relationship to God the Father. And so if the fear of the Lord becomes real to our hearts, as it did to the woman in our story, a few things happen. First, this fear starts to beat out all other fears. It starts to win. It starts to take hold of all the things in our life that grip us, that drag us down. And it starts to reshape how we go about our life. Because our fear about our circumstances or about what other people think or say about us, our fear of not getting what we want starts to crumble under the compelling beauty that God had every right to judge us for stubbornly resenting him, and yet he lovingly took the judgment upon himself. Fear starts to beat out all other fears. And then what happens next? We begin to feel regularly convicted that all sorts of areas in our life are out of sorts. We've looked to family or romance or to career or to our culture to meet our deepest needs. And when we find now, they come up short. And when we have the fear of the Lord, we say, Lord, I am in deep and desperate need of what you have done for me in Christ. I will never fix all of my problems. I will never heal all of my wounds. I will never find all of my happiness apart from you. But, Lord, I receive again your grace. Help me not to harden my heart, not to know that you're there, but reject looking to you. Help me to receive again your grace, to know that you have proven me good and worthy because Christ has done that work on my behalf. I receive your sacrificial love again, and I'm convinced there is no other way for me to live this day. And so as we go forward into that, finally we, see, we begin to see more and more just how restored we are, to God. Philippians 2 puts it this way. Paul says, again, the Apostle Paul, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed God, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear, with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The fear of the Lord is how we work out our our salvation. It doesn't say Uh, work for your salvation. It says, work out your salvation. The salvation you've already received in Christ, it's God who's working in you according to, what does it say? His good pleasure. So even if I'm going to please God, it's only because God's already pleased with me. Knowing the fear of the Lord is the only thing that gives you a newfound confidence to face all the difficulties of life, to have, no longer do we lose heart. We say, we're learning not to lose heart. We're learning to take courage. Because the fear of the Lord gives us confidence of God's salvation and then urges us into this new way of life that we continue to live out this gift of salvation and it starts to become fruitful in our everyday life, in our work, in our families, and in our relationships. Friends, to have this fear of the Lord guiding our hearts is no longer to live in fear or terror that we haven't done enough to please God or make our lives okay, but that he has done more than enough to cover all of that. So let's pray to, uh, to this God who's given us this gift. Lord, thank you that you have loved us with that kind of sacrificial love, and you have given us an opportunity to see your, the fear of the Lord and to take it into our hearts, and that then it reshapes us. So we pray as we struggle with the variety of things that you have allowed in our lives and the things that are standing before us that challenge us. Would you grant us courage and confidence to know that you have given us a salvation that truly can be worked out and made fruitful in every area of life. We love you. We pray this, say, asking, Lord, that you would be honored in and through us. Amen.